This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Russiagate. The nation's Aaron Mate says pundits are wrong about Russian social media involvement in U.S. politics. Also, now that the holidays are over, it's time to talk about the workers who were Christmas temporaries at Amazon warehouses. I mean, seasonal associates at Amazon fulfillment centers. Alex Press will talk about them. But first, now that the Democrats are in charge of the House of Representatives, it's time to consider what they can accomplish for comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, I want to start by asking not about the progressives in the House, but rather the progressives in the Senate and the lessons we can learn from them, in particular from Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and what you call the dogs that did not bark in the night. Well, there were some radical proposals that were made out on the campaign trail, most of which immediately got the predictable uh, Republican slapdown. But the dog that didn't bark in the night that interested me the most was a proposal by Tammy Baldwin. She had introduced a bill that would require corporations to have about a third of their board members selected not by shareholders, but by their own employees, by workers, which is a version of what the Germans call co-determination. In Germany, any corporation which has more than 500 employees has to uh, split their corporate boards, actually, between representatives of shareholders and representatives of their employees. Uh, Elizabeth Warren followed up on that later uh, in the year with a proposal that was essentially the same as Tammy Baldwin's, except that it called for 40% of the workers. But Elizabeth Warren was running for re-election in Massachusetts, and her re-election was never in doubt. Tammy Baldwin was running in a very purple state, Wisconsin, uh, which had gone for Donald Trump, and was already being attacked. The Koch brothers and, and their their band had already spent more than $4 million on negative ads on her, and they spent another $11 million in the course of the campaign after she introduced this bill, and they didn't say word one about it. And I, I think the reason they didn't say word one about it was that they thought that even, you know, workers, uh, the, the whole white working class, which has lent, obviously, a good deal of its support to Donald Trump, actually, if they started to think about this idea, they might like it which is not the sort of thing that the Koch brothers wanted to have even in the public discussion. So Tammy Baldwin, uh, having what under conventional political analysis would be kind of a glass jaw, uh, having uh, proposed this semi-socialistic proposal, actually the right didn't bring it up. And that led me to think that there were probably a range of pro-worker policies that uh, the left could, uh, could introduce 
that the right would just as soon not have discussed and, and would feel kind of awkward voting against. So let me ask, worker representatives on corporate boards, what do we know about support among Americans for that kind of proposal? Well, it's not like there's been a lot of polling on it because it's in terms of, you know, other than people like me advocating it for years, <laughs> yes. uh, it, it, it's only last year that this actually uh, reached the level of a, of a concrete political proposal. But there was a group called Data for Progress, which was uh, set up by a bunch of data analysts who'd worked on Obama's uh, 2012 re-election campaign that did do polling and found that it had 52% support and just 23% opposition. And wow. It wasn't just a, nor- it wasn't just a regular poll. I actually surveyed a, a, a very large number of folks and, and got results from every single, con- uh, every single one of the 435 congressional districts. And it actually led in 435 of the 435 districts. So um, wow. this, this suggested that one of the slow-to-emerge but really there results of the uh, 2008 crash and the very halting recovery that, that came out of that and people's growing awareness of these huge levels of economic inequality is that they support stuff like this. It's not like there's any great love for the, uh, the banks and corporations that are the major players in the American economy and people understand in American politics. Well, the Democrats certainly have moved left in recent years, the voters, and especially uh, in 2018, the elected officials. That uh, It's been very fast, really, and pretty amazing, for at least for old-timers like me. Yes, and or for an old-timer like me who remembers that you don't have to have a long-term memory to remember when uh, Kristen Gillibrand and Cory Booker decide two presidential, likely presidential candidates were the darlings of Wall Street, and, and, and now they both support Medicare for All and Bernie Sanders' ideas on full employment. Uh, I, I should also add that in her talk upon becoming Speaker again, Speaker Pelosi uh, quoted uh, Justice uh, Louis Brandeis, saying, we can have democracy or we can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And she went out wow. and made a big point about dealing with economic inequality. So in, in a sense... Nancy Pelosi is famed for being a very adept politician, and previously centrist Democrats running for president can also see where the Democratic rank and file is headed. And so the whole party, at different rates of speed and different rates of enthusiasm, has moved uh, to the left. How far to the left varies, you know, according to a number of factors. But yes, the whole party has moved to the left on uh, on economics and uh, to a certain degree even on climate change, even though there's has been pushed back there. I should add that in her speech, the one committee that Nancy Pelosi referred to was this new select committee on climate change and uh, referring conceptually, if not by name, to the so-called Green New Deal that uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and others have been calling for the party to uh, move forward on. So you say the Democrats are moving at different speeds toward the left. Let's talk about where there is unity, where Democrats can come together in the next weeks and months. And after that, let's talk about where the divides can be found. Well, obviously, campaign finance reform, which is one of their first initiatives built by Representative Sarbanes of Maryland, to create huge levels of uh, matching funds for uh, candidates who raise low-dollar amounts. I I think the whole idea of a Green New Deal, which relates to 
regional economic development, which relates to infrastructure, all of those notions are sufficiently fuzzy that some kind of, you know, halfway house on that can be reached. Some will want them to go further. I think they're going to push for a $15 minimum wage, and there will be some members from states where the median wage is barely $15. Yeah. They may say, no, it should only be 12 but certainly they'll they'll vote for uh they'll vote for raising it and then of course the entire democratic caucus is behind the notion of investigating trump not all of them are for impeaching trump but if there's a serious investigation that may be that may become inevitable nonetheless so i think we're going we're going to see that then they want to do something on health care and here there are some divisions how far to go certainly uh, a, a very large number of democrats in the house are committed to Medicare for all. Uh, there's going to be huge centrist and establishment pushback. Even there, though, I think there are some ways that you can envision some coming together. My American prospect colleague, Paul Starr, has proposed something called midlife Medicare, which would simply lower the age of eligibility for Medicare from uh, the current 65 or thereabouts to 55 or 50. Paul made that proposal at two speeds. One speed is giving Americans the option to buy in and get a high rate of subsidy. The other is simply like Medicare already is to just just extend it and and have that funded by taxes, which could be collected from corporations, which would be save the expense of covering their employees over the age of 50, and uh, there's a lot of money to be had there. Certainly the whole party uh, wants to, to create a negotiations over drug prices, since we have the highest drug prices uh, in, the, uh, in the world in this country, and as much as uh, we're, we're the, about the only major country which doesn't negotiate drug prices and set drug prices with, with the drug companies. So there are halfway houses which I, I think could you know, command the support of of a lot of Democrats, just as someone like Bernie Sanders, who is obviously more than any single person, the guy who put Medicare for All on the map, nonetheless, he was a a fierce defender of of the Affordable Care Act of of Obamacare when it came under attack by the Republicans. And I think the same kind of, this is as good as we can get, so we will go for it, mentality could, could relate to the party coming to, if not together, at least, Everyone stopping for a bit uh, in in support of a proposal like midlife Medicare. I'm delighted to point out that we have not talked about the 2020 presidential campaign thus far. We have not talked about the horse race. If you turn on CNN or MSNBC, it's all about the horse race. But I wonder if you would like to say a few words about where we stand. Well, there are a lot of horses. Um, you know, I counted eight sitting senators, possibly nine, who could run. I, I think seven of them are, are, are pretty much definites. There are four or five present or recently passed governors who could run. There are uh, two or three billionaires, from uh, Michael Bloomberg to Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, and Mark Cuban, who could who expressed interest in running. So, I mean, how do you deal with this? I mean, you could do this sort of the NCAA bracket version. You, know, you, you could have a billionaire's uh, runoff, and they could go against, let's say, center-left female Democratic senators, mm. uh, uh, Jill Brand and, uh, and Kamala Harris uh, and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, uh, you could have the left 
primary uh, between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown. It, it's kind of bewildering. And of course, the, the real problem is that, you know, if you have uh, 15 people, seriously, uh, serious candidates in Iowa and New Hampshire and then Super Tuesday in California, which has moved its primary date up, you know, you're gonna, your winner is going to have 16% of the vote. There are really no good solutions. If you put them all on the stage and there are, you know, what, 15 to 20 serious candidates, how much can they say in a debate that's not going to last longer than two or three hours? I mean, not much. And one other thing I'd like to bring up, that some people say we need a winner, a winner at all costs, and that means Joe Biden. Other people say we've got to go with the issues, we've got to go with the progressive agenda, and that means Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. Do, do you want to take a stand and, on and this? And some people say we've got to go with charisma and yes. we go with Beto or Aurora. Right. You know. uh, first of all, anyone who knows for sure who's the, uh, you know, the strongest candidate against Trump, uh, great, tell me who to bet on in the next race. Uh, that, that, that is so unclear. By the way, uh, Dianne Feinstein in, in, endorsed Joe Biden, which uh, is establishment gerontocracy at its best. <laughs> okay. i just throw that out there for whatever it's worth. Harold Meyerson wrote about imperatives for Democrats for the new issue of the American Prospect. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. Thank you. Next up, Aaron Mate. He says pundits are wrong about Russian social media involvement in American politics. He was a host and producer for The Real News. His work has appeared at Al Jazeera English, on Vice and Democracy Now!, at The Intercept, and in The Nation. Aaron Mate, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Well, you studied two Senate commission studies about Russia working to manipulate American voters on social media. They focused on a Russian trolling group called the Internet Research Agency, the IRA. First, tell us about these reports. Who did them, what their goals were? So uh, the reports were put out by uh, two groups, uh, the University of Oxford's uh, Computational Propaganda Research Project and the firm new knowledge, uh, and they were commissioned uh, by the Senate uh, to look at the um, uh, Russian social media operation that um, is said to have uh, played a major role in the 2016 presidential campaign. This is what we've been hearing about for many months now, ever since Robert Mueller indicted uh, employees of the social media firm, the Internet Research Agency, based in Russia. And uh, they go through all of uh, the Russian social media activity, uh, analyzing the posts that they uh, made on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook mostly. Um, and they give us a pretty clear uh, look at what that content actually was. And what I argue in my Nation article is that contrary to this uh, prevalent view we've heard, that these were uh, sophisticated and that they... Um, likely uh, swung the 2016 election, uh, I argued that, in fact, they're not sophisticated, pretty juvenile, and I don't think we'd be talking about them or had even noticed them had they not been the subject of this uh, intense um, hoopla for the past year with people comparing them to you know, 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. I want to go through your the evidence in your argument here. One of the reports you cite says the Internet Research Agency was, quote, run like a sophisticated marketing agency 
It employed and trained over a thousand people to engage in round-the-clock influence operations, first targeting Ukrainian and Russian citizens and then Americans, close quote. The most alarming thing to many of us about those reports was their conclusion about the reach of Russian propaganda in the United States, which appears to have been massive. This is the new knowledge report. The IRA had 187 million engagements on Instagram, 76 million engagements on Facebook, reaching 126 million people. They had uh, 1.4 million users on their fake Twitter accounts, and they uploaded over 1,000 videos to YouTube. That sounds massive to me. What, what do you think about those findings? Okay, so on the surface, I think these numbers uh, about the supposed reach of Russian propaganda sound impressive. But to scrutinize them, to look at what the actual facts are, what I think you'll um, realize is that the fact that they've been repeated so widely, these figures have been repeated so widely, says something about the reach of American propaganda about Russian propaganda. So take, for example, the 126 million figure. This is widely cited all the time, that these Russian Facebook ads and posts reach 126 million Americans. Now, putting aside the actual details of what those posts were, which were, we know now, they were mostly ads that ran after the election, and they were mostly not about the election, as the new knowledge report makes clear. Just looking at the number of 126 million people, if you look at what that figure is, that comes from a, uh, what that is basically, it's a spin on Facebook's own estimate. So the, the, what it comes from is Facebook's Colin Stretch testifying to Congress in October 2017, and I, I quote him in the piece. And what he says is, our best estimate is that approximately 126 million people may have been served one of these stories at some time during the two-year period between 2015 and 2017. So in short, uh, 126 million is a spin on Facebook's own estimate. And even there, they're talking about 126 million people might be seeing one piece of, of content. And to put that in context of what, how much content is actually out on Facebook, Colin Stretch of Facebook also said that the posts uh, that were generated by this Russian troll farm uh, amount to approximately one out of 23,000 pieces of content that people see on Facebook. And here he's saying that someone might have seen one of those pieces of content over a two-year period. You say that the Russian social media disinformation campaigns lacked sophistication. You know, you could say the same thing about some of Trump's tweets. What, what exactly do you mean? Well, let's look at the numbers, first of all. Uh, if you look at the new knowledge report, uh, they point out that, quote, explicitly political content was a small percentage. And they give you a breakdown of what the percentages are. Just 11% of the total content that they say comes from this Russian troll farm was related to the election. So the IRA's posts that go on were minimally about the candidates, with roughly 6% of tweets 18% of Instagram posts, and 7% of Facebook posts having mentioned Trump or Clinton by name. So if we talk about this being a sophisticated operation to influence the 2016 election, it's difficult to do that when such a small percentage of the posts actually pertain to the 2016 election. And then even look at the posts themselves. I think it's curious, and I put this out in the piece, that when we talk about supposed Russian sophisticated 
operation. Nobody ever cites any specific posts that they think were uh, effective towards that end. I think that's a, for a very clear reason why they don't do that. It's because if you look at these posts themselves, they're incredibly juvenile. They're written in broken English. They're pretty silly. And most of and and the most popular posts weren't even about the election. The most, one of the most popular posts is a is a is a cartoon of a gun wielding Yosemite Sam. Uh, another one asks uh, asks users to give it a like if they believe in Jesus. The most popular post on Facebook was this weird screed that was that was a, like coming up with some sort of weird conspiracy about voters and it barely mentioned Hillary Clinton. Like that was the most popular post that even mentioned Hillary Clinton before the election. So if you look at the posts themselves, even though the small percentage that even mentioned the election or the candidates, I don't see how you can possibly argue that they were sophisticated. I want to just pull back and talk about the big picture here. We're talking about what the Russians were trying to do. Big picture, what did Russia, what did Putin want? Basically, their most important goal was an easing of the sanctions that Obama had put in place after Russia annexed Crimea. And obviously, Hillary was not going to do that. She was the Secretary of State when the sanctions were put in place. So Putin and the Russians wanted Trump to win, and they worked to help him win on basically two different fronts, the cyber attacks on the Democrats, hacking the email of the DNC, and what we're talking about, what's the subject of your article, what is politely called information influence spread through social media. So you're looking at the second part of this and arguing that it was small, amateurish, and mostly unrelated to the uh, election. But what do you conclude about the, the, the big picture? Do you think Russia wanted Trump to win, tried to help him uh, win? Well, there's two questions there, right? I definitely think Russia wanted Trump to win. I mean, we know that because Putin said that. The question of whether the Russians helped Trump win, I, I don't assume that that's the case. I realize that this is not a very popular view, but just because U.S. intelligence officials have told us that, I don't take that on faith. I think it's our job as journalists to look at what the facts are. And I don't think we've seen enough evidence yet to believe this widely held view that there was a sweeping Russian campaign to help elect Donald Trump. The social media angle, I think, is, is pretty clear that it was juvenile and it was run by this firm whose owner, yes, is connected to the Kremlin. But I don't think this operation itself was carried out by Russian intelligence, or at least I've seen no evidence to indicate that. And if it was carried out by Russian intelligence, I don't think it was very effective. In terms of stealing emails, you know, we do have this indictment from Mueller, which accuses the GRU, Russian military intelligence, of uh, hacking the DNC. I do think that is definitely evidence. I think if I had to bet at this point whether or not the Russians hacked Democratic emails, I, I would bet that they did because I think it'd be pretty crazy if, if Mueller got this so wrong. But at the same time, uh, you know, we have to ask, to see actual, the actual evidence that this comes from. These are a bunch of assertions by a prosecutor. And I don't think that just because those assertions are made, that means that, that we take that to be concrete proof. It's certainly evidence, but it's not proof. And so whether or not there was a massive Russian effort to uh, help Donald Trump and defeat Hillary Clinton, I certainly think that, that there's evidence pointing towards that. But I'm not going to take that personally as being settled yet. I think we need to see more evidence. And let me say, I mean, whether or not Russia stole emails or not, even if they did, 
I don't think this is the existential issue that it's being made out to be. I mean, for two years, this has con- I consumed our politics, this question of whether or not Trump conspired with a, a Russian interference operation. And I don't think the evidence is there for the fact, for the supposition that Trump conspired with it. And so given that, I think those of us on the left loathe Donald Trump's presidency and, and wish it would go away are making a really big mistake in, in believing that Robert Mueller is going to give us that outcome that we want. The focus on it has been a pretty big waste of time and energy, and it's, it's diverted us from what Trump is actually doing. And it's, it's fueled so much of the, of the so-called resistance into Robert Mueller and hoping that he, he gives us the outcome that we all want instead of taking on the act of resisting ourselves and, and focusing on what Trump is actually doing to the country, whether it's pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords and the Iran nuclear deal, or you know, overseeing the tax cuts and the decimation of Obamacare at home and a general attack on, on working people. I think, I think this focus on, on Russia and collusion has taken our eye off of that. And I think that is the most dangerous part of this entire uh, two-year Russia investigation. Aaron Mate, you can read his article, New Studies Show Pundits Are Wrong About Russian Social Media Involvement in U.S. Politics, at thenation.com. Aaron, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, Jeff. Next up, what's it like for the half million people who work for Amazon worldwide, especially in the holiday season? How do they get all that stuff to you on the day after you order it? For that, we turn to Alex Press. She's an assistant editor at Jacobin and a freelance writer based in New York City who's written for The Washington Post, Vox, N Plus One, and The Nation. Alex Press, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, there's a genre of YouTube videos I learned about from your new piece at The Nation made by people who work at Amazon warehouses. What are these videos like? Yeah, so these are really dark watching for late at night when you can't sleep. These videos, <laughs> I don't know how many there are. I've watched dozens of them, but they're usually made early on when someone has taken a job at one of Amazon's fulfillment centers, um, and they like any other YouTube video, you know, low budget filmed in someone's room, but describing what the process is of working there. And the intent of these videos is, seems to be from almost everyone I've watched to inform anyone who might be considering a job at Amazon, what it's like, what is the routine, is it mindlessly boring? Most people think, yes, it sort of gets to you that you can't listen to music, that you can't kneel down. But after a while, they all start to sort of blur together. And as I write in the piece, the not unexpected follow-up is that this is a really hard job. And so a lot of people's next video is why I left Amazon. And they've, they don't make it very far as far as how long they're staying there. The turnover is really high at these places. Well, when I was young, there used to be a job called Christmas Temporary. This was at department stores when we had department stores. Of course, the department stores have all been replaced by Amazon. Amazon doesn't have Christmas Temporaries. What is that job called now? So now it's called a seasonal associate. And which... and and what season is that? Is that the baseball season? <laughs> no, that is, of course, the holiday season. So now that Amazon is how we order almost everything, not all of us, but many of us, um, over the holiday season, of course, Amazon's orders are ratcheted up. So they 
hire another 100,000 or so extra employees for what they call peak season. So that's around Thanksgiving time through Christmas. Um, and so during that time, there's not only this additional workforce, but then permanents, as they're called, people who work year-round, sort of are asked to work certain um, mandatory overtime, their hours shift. So Amazon staffs up. So those, even though the, de- the department stores aren't as around as they used to be, uh, a lot of the people who would have taken those jobs are now seasonal associates at Amazon. And there's one seasonal associate at Amazon who's particularly noteworthy in print, not on YouTube. Tell us about her. The book I reviewed for The Nation recently is a first-person, semi-fictionalized account of a woman named Heike Geisler. So she is a German woman who's a very successful novelist in her own right, and like many writers, couldn't get by on the money she was making from writing and from translation work. So she went to work in an Amazon warehouse as a seasonal associate um, a few years ago in Germany. And so this book is what she produced that is based on her time there. And it is, yeah, it's a really remarkable, hopefully we'll have more accounts, but she may be the first that's written about this experience. But Heike Geisler is not your typical Amazon uh, warehouse worker. Actually, I'm supposed to call it a fulfillment center, not a warehouse. She's an accomplished writer. Right. So in a certain way, it's a very odd person to be giving us this account of a very hard job. She is culturally bourgeois. She is an elite novelist. And yet what drove her to work there is the same thing as any other person who's working in this warehouse, which is she as a kid, she couldn't make ends meet, so she needs help and this is the only job that she can find, and so this is what leads her to work there. And part of the tension of the book that makes it, you know, really interesting is she's coming to grips with the fact that she is, though she may be a successful writer and be different culturally in a lot of ways from sort of the stereotype of an Amazon fulfillment center worker, at a very base level, she is exactly the same. Yeah, you quote her uh, saying that as an Amazon fulfillment center worker... You are generic. You are generic in in quotes. That's a powerful idea. Let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. I mean, the tension of this book, and if you've ever worked a job that's anything like a manual labor job in an Amazon facility, regardless of your personality, your life history, very quickly you realize that you and everyone else must exist to the same rhythm of the factory. So you don't get to choose how you behave the amount of time it takes you to eat, what your preferences are, you're reduced in a way to what she says in the book is we are like robots. You know, we are just tools. Our hands are just tools. We have no voices. And so very quickly, all of the sort of big ideas we have about our personalities are rendered pretty mute by the base necessities of a job like Amazon. But can't a seasonal worker who's a writer think of this work as uh, as research for their creative efforts? Like, you know, David Sedaris did that diary of being an elf for a department store Santa, what, 25 years ago, and it made him world famous. Sure, and, and Geisler clearly does that, especially at the beginning of the book. The narrator describes how she's thinking of herself as doing research, how she's playing disguise, the Amazon warehouse outfit doesn't fit her right, the vest doesn't fit, and so she pretends she's playing dress-up. But very quickly, she realizes that she can't think about things in this removed way that sort of keeps her 
from psychically acknowledging that she's now been, I think what for a lot of people who work these jobs feels like you're rendered immobile as a person, right? You become a machine. And so part of the tension in this book really is her adapting to the pace of the work and very quickly losing all of the little individual movements she had she had used to keep herself distant. So she goes from being acting somewhat different or refusing little rules to no longer having the energy, both mentally and physically, to keep up that act. And so she just becomes a worker. Actually, there's a lot of rules about that Amazon requires you to follow. Uh, tell us about a little more in detail of what the work regime is in an Amazon fulfillment center. As much as it seems like we might be able to figure it out on our own, you know, part of systemizing a sort of machine-like routine is there are many different parts of this assembly process. So people have different titles that are all very specific to Amazon. You know, there are pickers. Pickers are the ones who go through the aisles with the machine telling them where to pick an item, and then they must bring it to this sort of bucket conveyor belt. Then there's someone who is at the bucket who checks the packaging and makes sure it's all right and, and takes the system and inputs this, the item to check. But in this interesting way that really comes out in this book, people are very much reduced to the rules and the machines that they must follow, right? And so the irony, of course, like so many of these jobs in the past, is that if you adhere to all of the rules, you really will fall behind because you have a very high quota of how many items you need to deal with every hour at these jobs. So people start sort of taking all these items at once rather than individually and putting them in boxes. So there's this constant speed-up process that you're subject to, just like in the sort of old visions of the factory work that, say, old Marxists were, were talking about with speed-up and Taylorism. Well, surely the workers at an Amazon warehouse are full of dreams of resistance, of sabotage, of uniting to fight back. What can you tell us about that? Geisler's narrator talks about, she fantasizes as she's being, say, sexually harassed by a manager or forced to work while sick. And all of her coworkers are, of course, regularly working while sick. There's a door in the facility that won't close right during the winter, and so everyone starts catching a cold, but they can't afford to take days off. So Geisler fantasizes about resistance. She imagines what would it be for her and her coworkers to refuse to work in these conditions, and yet she never acts. And what's interesting and really what is, I think, the most important thing that's happening within the world of all of these workers worldwide right now is that people are starting to organize and resist while working in these facilities. So um, Geisler's narrator, of course, as I say in the piece, even goes to a picket line at this warehouse after she has left her seasonal associate job, um, and there is a strike happening. And the piece came out just the same week as the first unionization campaign at one of these centers went public in New York City at a Long Island facility. So these jobs are both incredibly difficult to, to really get the energy and the emotion to resist because they're exhausting. You can't get enough time to sleep or to eat, so how could you possibly organize? And yet people are doing it, which really does speak to the fact that there is only so much oppression and exploitation that a person can put up with before they will find the people with them and they'll start building something that's more humane. 
Well, we've emphasized, and many people emphasize, that Amazon is a new thing. Amazon has revolutionized the world. It didn't even exist, uh, you know, a decade ago. Along with the, revol the revolutionary transformation of marketing, uh, would you say Amazon has created new forms of work? Well, certainly the when you read this book, Geisler's new book, or just about any of these accounts by journalists that have gone either undercover at Amazon or have interviewed current workers, I've certainly interviewed a number of them, it doesn't sound very new, right? So yeah. some of the process is very new, and yet, you know, I quote Marx in the piece. We're talking about the alienation of people from their labor and working people to the bone. I mean, all of these YouTube videos that people make are about their feet ache and they have to go to the hospital or they die in this facility from a heart attack. This is very old. And I think that's really an important takeaway is that if you look beyond the, you know, the remarkable kind of technology and place that can get your package to your door within two days, if not sooner, what we're seeing is very, very old. And I think people should maybe not rule out old forms of dealing with exploitation of labor. Alex Press, her article on work on the Amazon assembly line appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.